The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, good morning, Bereans. We are continuing this morning in 2 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 2. We're dealing with the first 12 verses of this chapter. There's something unusual about these verses, and that is that you're not going to find them anywhere else in Scripture, which makes it a little bit difficult dealing with this text because you can't use the analogy of faith and go somewhere else and say, well, this passage helps us understand this because they're not found anywhere else. So, therefore, you've got a lot of different interpretations on this text and what it means. And I'll just give you one more this morning to add to that lot of interpretations, and then you can make up your mind what you think is, uh, is actually happening here. One thing we do know is that the Thessalonians believed that the Lord had already come. All right, And we see this in verses 1 and 2. He really gives us the big three here of eschatology. All right, The coming of the Lord Yeshua. That's the parousia. All right. Then he says, our being gathered to Him, that's the resurrection. In the day of the Lord, that's the judgment. These are all synchronous events. If the day of the Lord had come, the resurrection had come, the judgment had come, they'd all come together because they're synchronous events. Now, the fact that they thought it had come in their day tells us that their view of the second coming and judgment must not have included the removal of Christians from the earth and the burning up of the earth with fire like so many today believe it is. Their concept of the coming of Christ in the day of the Lord was different from what most people in the church believe today. John MacArthur expresses this predominant view of our day when he writes this. He says, The day of the Lord is a technical term for the time of the final judgment on the ungodly. And by this he means the total destruction of the earth at the end of time. But that's not a biblical idea of the day of the Lord. We have various references to the day of the Lord throughout the Tanakh, and it's used of God judging nations, different nations. But we come to the New Testament, all the references in the New Testament to the day of the Lord, and there's only four of them, they refer to God's judgment on Jerusalem that took place in AD 70. The apostate nation was being judged by God, it was the end of the age. And Jerusalem was being destroyed by the Roman armies. This is an end of the Old Covenant. It's a consummation of the New Covenant. Now in verse 3, Paul tells them, don't be deceived by the things you're hearing. And he tells them why they don't need to be deceived, because he said the day of the Lord is not going to come until some other events happen. He says in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, that's the day of the Lord, will not come unless... The rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So, the day of the Lord, the second coming, the resurrection, took place. If it took place, then something is wrong. Because he said, this has to happen first. You have to have a rebellion first, before they can come. You have to have the man of lawlessness revealed. And since this had not happened at the time of the writing, then the big three of eschatology had not taken place. Now, in our last study, I said that it's my opinion that the rebellion is not believers forsaking the faith. And that's the predominant view here of the rebellion. 
This is something they see in our future where Christians just all apostatize and turn away from the faith. That's a good, positive view of eschatology, isn't it? All right. I think the rebellion was a Jewish revolt against Rome. And we know from the Jewish historian Josephus and from other sources that in AD 66, a large-scale rebellion rose up in the land of Israel through the efforts of the Zealots, leading Rome to declaring war on Israel. Now, I think that Paul is saying here is, listen, the day of Christ, the judgment of Christ against Israel will not take place before the great rebellion led by the Zealots had already begun. And that makes sense because that's what brought on the war. So obviously the war is not going to happen until the zealots do this. So he's making it clear this is what's going on. It was the Jewish rebellion that caused Rome to attack and destroy Jerusalem, which was a judgment of Yahweh. Now, we saw last time that there are many different ideas on who this man of lawlessness was. Some say he's Nero Caesar. Some say he's the beast of Revelation 13. Some say he's the high priest of Israel. And the one thing I like about these views, at least they see this in a first century context. That's important, okay? Because most people don't do that. The reformers said this man of lawlessness was the Pope. Okay? They just, they were absolutely, all of them believed that. They were convinced. But most people today see this as a future to us Antichrist. Now, this text has nothing to do with Antichrist, but they just like that title, so they throw it out there and they say, this is some guy coming in our future. Now, Bob Russell, who's retired now, but he pastored the largest church in America, he wrote an article, and this article was written June 18th, 2023. Pretty current, okay? And it's important because he's going to help us out. Because in the article, he gives us eight signs the man of lawlessness is near. Okay, eight signs, so we can know what's going to be happening here soon. He says this, The second chapter of 2 Thessalonians warns that after the church is gathered to Christ. Oh, this happens after the church is gathered? He says, A man of lawlessness will be... (laughs) Yeah, hold on. I just washed my lips and I can't do a thing with them. Catapulted into a worldwide influence and deceive a frightened world into following him. People, the problem here, this is the exact opposite of what the text says. Because the text says our being gathered together to him won't happen until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. But he says the church is going to all just be gathered and get out of here, and then he's going to come along. Well, then why do they even care? And here's what I really found interesting in the article. He gives these eight signs. The fourth sign that he gives that we can know, you and I, that the man of lawlessness is near He says, the sign is the increasing concern about UFOs. Like, I'm not sure what text he used for that, because he didn't put a text in there. But, you know, I mean, it's very timely that just last week, you know, Congress met and discussed UFOs, and they had hearings on it and whistleblowers. Let me tell you something about UFOs. Don't worry about it. We're in a flat earth with a dome. It's a sealed system. No no foreign alien's going to get in here, okay? We're protected, all right? Uh, they've already been. They caught in. They snuck in. They snuck in during the flood. All right. So that's. I mean, that's just a, the. That's the typical view that Bob Russell gives here. Now, in another article, in Christianity and Politics: Truth and Truthfulness, Dr. David Gussie writes this. 
He says, in this passage, in 2 Thessalonians, the author is spinning out an eschatological scenario about the events before Christ returns. But that does not mean the passage has no value in any other context. We do not know how soon Christ will return. So he's looking for it in the future. But we ought to be able to see we have had at the forefront of our national life for the last decade a man of lawlessness whom this passage aptly describes. So the man of lawlessness, he says, he's been on the scene for a decade. Guess who he's talking about? Trump. That's the man of lawlessness that he's got a... a I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this is, yeah, that's definitely, so, so Trump is the man of lawlessness. Uh, who's the restrainer? Oh, it must be the DOJ, right? The American government. Yeah, we're, we're the restrainer. Wow, you can take these texts and do some funny things with them, all right? Believers, the term man of lawlessness is not a future beast. It's not some future antichrist. It was a first century zealot in Jerusalem and the temple itself, which was existent when Paul wrote these words. We'll see that as we go through this text. It's definitely something happened in the Corinthian, I mean in the Thessalonians time frame. My opinion is the best candidate is John Levy of Gishala. We talked about that last week. That's my pick, okay? Others think it's Eliezer Ben Simon, others think it was Eliezer Ben Ananias. Take your pick, okay? <laughs> there's, a, there's other examples, all right? Now here's get this. I think this is important. I don't think we can be dogmatic here, okay? Now, if you know me, I'm usually dogmatic. <laughs> I don't think we can be dogmatic here because I don't think we can know with certainty exactly who this zealot was. And frankly, I don't care, okay? I don't care. You know why I don't care? Because he was a first century figure, all right? And knowing for certain who he is won't change my life. It won't help me love my wife anymore. It won't help me be a better Christian. It won't help me anything. Now listen, it's fun to speculate. And I love to research and I like to dig. But let's not be dogmatic about passages like this, okay? And fight over dumb things. Well, you I had people already this week write me, Oh, I, how did John Gishela, you know, say he was God? And I'm like, oh my word, okay, we're... I didn't get to that text yet, so you know, at least wait till I get to it before you, you know, start giving me a hard time about it. Uh, all right, at the end of verse 3, he says about this man of lawlessness, he says he's called the son of destruction. Now, the expression son of was a common Hebraic idiom that indicated that's what was a characteristic of a person. This is the very title that Judas received in John 17, 12. Yeshua says, while I was with them, I kept them talking about his disciples, in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Yeshua said he guarded and protected his disciples, except for one who was destined to be lost. And the literal translation here is, except the son of perishing. And the Semitic expression in the literal Greek text is a play on words that means to perish. Because what it says is not one has perished except the son of perishing. And he's talking about Judas. And the same can be said of this man of lawlessness. He's, some, he's someone who's perishing. It's a, in a soon-to-be-published article, soon by, I think, next couple of weeks, entitled Unraveling the Mystery of Lawless, the Lawless One, Bob Cruikshank Jr. writes this, 
Like Judas, the lawless one's actions are in accord with the activity of Satan. That's verse 9, and we'll get to that next week. He says, Satan would use the lawless one just as he had used Judas, and that's what 9 through 12 talks about, okay? Judas set the events of the crucifixion in motion. Once God allowed Satan to be released to jumpstart the war, the zealots would likewise become his tool to set that in motion as well. And I agree. Good job there, Bob. Uh, like I said, that article, he's kind of waiting for me to finish this so then he can publish the article and reference this. But sorry, we've got to do one more week, Bob. <clears throat> let's move on. All right, let's pick it up in verse 4. He says, This lawless one opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. All right, so this man... He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. He does not simply exalt himself over God or the Jews. The expression, every so-called God, that's echoed by Paul in the first letter to the Corinthians where he speaks of the so-called gods in 8.5. So the man of lawlessness opposes every object that is called divine. Now the zealots did oppose and exalt themselves above all that is called God. And the Romans had many gods. And the zealots stood firm and adamant against all the powers of Rome and all its gods as expressed in the armies that sought to overthrow them. And they exalted themselves above all that is called God by doing away with all that stood for God in the holy sanctuary. Now Josephus tells us what went on in the city and he kind of enforces, backs up this idea that the zealots started this war and that they were just anti-God, all gods. And you will see that as we look. Now, this is a rather lengthy quote of Josephus. And these quotes of Josephus, when the notes are put up, which will be soon, right, Jeff? When the notes are put up, all these references will be where I got this from in Josephus. So if you want to look that up, I'm not putting the references in the slides, but they'll be in the notes. It'll be up shortly. All right, Josephus writes, And indeed, many there were of the Jews that deserted every day and fled away from the zealots, although their flight was very difficult since they had guarded every passage out of the city and slew everyone that was caught at them. So anybody trying to get out, the zealots are just killing. And taking it for granted, they were going over to the Romans. They just figure they're deserting, let's kill them. Yet did he who gave them money get clear off, while only he that gave them none was voted a traitor. So the upshot was this, that the rich purchased their flight by money, while none but the poor were slain. Among all the roads, also vast numbers of dead bodies lay in heaps. This is going on during the three and a half year siege. There's just bodies laying everywhere piled up. And even many of those that were so zealous in deserting at length chose rather to perish within the city for the hopes of burial made death in their own city appear of the two less terrible to them. So in other words, some were staying and just dying in the city because they, they wanted to be buried. And they figure, if I go out there and get killed, they just throw me in a heap and I won't get buried. And that's not good. All right. He says, but these zealots came at last to the degree of barbarity at not to bestow a burial either on those slain in the city or those that lay along the roads. But as if they had made an agreement to cancel both the laws of their country and the laws of nature. So they're just going against everything that's godly, everything that's right. They're just going against nature. And he said, and at the same time, they had defiled men with their wicked actions. 
They would pollute the divinity itself. So again, they're going against God. They don't care about what God says. They're just, this is exactly what the verse is talking about. They left the dead bodies to putrefy under the sun. You can imagine what that place smelled like. And the same punishment was allotted to such as buried any as to those that deserted. In other words, he's saying, if you tried to bury somebody, we're going to kill you because we don't want you burying people, which was no other than death, while he that granted the favor of the grave to another would presently stand in need of a grave himself. To say all in a word, no other gentle passion was so entirely lost among them as mercy. For what were the greatest objects of pity did most of all irritate these wretches, and they transferred the rage from the living to those that had been slain and from the dead to the living. Nay, the terror was so very great that he who survived called them that were first dead happy and being at rest already, as did those that were under torture in the prisons declare that among this comparison, those that lay unburied were the happiest. These men, therefore, trampled upon the laws of men and laughed at the laws of God. And this is what... 2 Thessalonians 2.4 is talking about. This is what's going on within the city. They just laughed at it. They didn't care about what God said. And for the oracles of the prophets, in other words, the prophets had made predictions about this. They don't care. They're going to fulfill them. They ridiculed them as tricks of jugglers. Yet did these prophets foretell many things concerning the rewards of virtue and the punishment of vice, which when these zealots violated they occasioned the fulfilling of those very prophecies belonging to their own country. So Josephus is here pinning the blame for the destruction of Jerusalem on these zealots. They're doing this. For there was great certain ancient oracles of those men that the city should then be taken and the sanctuary burnt by right of war. When a sedition should invade the Jews, that their own Hands should pollute the temple of God. So, they're, again, they're polluting the temple. Now, while these zealots did not quite disbelieve these predictions, they made themselves the instruments of their accomplishment. In other words, God predicted this temple's going to be destroyed. We're going to help God out. Right? We're going to make sure this all happens. So they opposed, they exalted themselves against every god or object of worship. They just wanted to violate this place. And these were Jews, Jewish zealots. Now, here he says so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. All right, another thing everybody wants to argue about, the temple. What temple is he talking about here? All right, the man of lawlessness, he's seated in the temple. There's not a little discussion about what the temple is. The most common interpretation of the temple is people say it's a reference to the church. And Paul does use the temple this way. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you, it's a plural you, the church, you are the temple of, or God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, plural, all right? So Paul did use it that way. The problem here is when this letter was written around 51, 52 AD, Paul had not written 1 Corinthians yet. Paul had not even advanced this analogy of the church as the body of Christ, the temple of God. So what would they say Paul meant by the temple. What would they think of the temple of God? Again, think it's a man of lawlessness. The law is the law of God. He's going against the law of God, and that would take place in the temple. And so it just makes sense that this is the temple that was standing at that time. And I think that's how they would have seen it. 
Now, Paul had taught them about the rebellion. Paul had taught them about the man of lawlessness when he was with them. He says this in verse 5. He says, do you not remember when I was still with you? I told you these things. So they knew about this. Now, Meyer in his commentary says this about the temple. is not a figurative representation of the Christian church, but cannot be otherwise understood than in its proper sense, but on the account of the repetition, repetition, <laughs> repetition of the article, can only one definite temple of the definite true God, that is the temple of Jerusalem, be meant. Now, I think it's clear he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. Many dispensationalists believe it is the Jewish temple he's talking about, but they don't think it's the one that's there in AD 70. It's going to be the rebuilt temple that he's talking about. Bob Utley, a futurist, writes this. Some see this temple as a rebuilt Jewish temple, possibly along the lines of Ezekiel 40 through 48. And that's talking about the temple in Ezekiel, but it's not talking about a temple yet to be rebuilt in our future. But many people take it that way. But if you look at it, you know, it's very specific. It gives a lot of measurements. But the thing with this temple in Ezekiel 48, there's no ceiling. There's no ceiling in this temple. And I believe this temple is a reference to the body of Christ. I think that's what Ezekiel's talking about. All right. Now, then he goes on to say, watch this. Other interpreters believe that these revealed eschatological events were soon to take place and therefore must refer to historical events of the first century. What? What crazy person would believe that? I mean, soon to take place? This stuff in Thessalonians? He goes on to say, others of us see these eschatological events as referring to both past and future events. See, that's how a lot of people want to do it. Well, yeah, that happened, but he's going to do it again. Well, where's the reference to that? All right? He says, the Old Testament prophets often took the events of their day and projected them into a future day of the Lord setting. Really? He says, in this way, the New Testament has a message to its own day. In other words, so he really was talking to the Thessalonians. Their own day and every succeeding period of history. This had to do with every generation. What? Every generation had an Antichrist. Every generation had, you know, the man of law. What is he talking about? He said, now I love this. We must take seriously the historical setting of the original author. Oh, good. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But, <laughs> you got to watch the buts. But also, the surprising 2,000-year delay of the second coming. So yeah, he says, we got to take this in its historical setting. Uh, great, I'm glad you see that. But we also got to stick it out in the future somewhere. Let me ask you something. If the Lord said, I'm coming soon, I'm coming shortly, I'm coming quickly, and he didn't come for 2,000 years, would that be a false prophecy? If he said, I'm coming to this generation, and he didn't come for 2,000 plus years, would that make him a false prophet? Yeah, it sure would. So how do you, how do you say well, it was there to them, but it's going to happen again? Let me ask you this, believers. What New Testament text talks about a second coming, a judgment, and a resurrection that is far off from the perspective of the New Testament writers? Which text? I'll wait. We're done. We're done. <laughs> There's no text. There's no text to say this is in the distant future. 
A few texts do not have a time text built into them, but the texts that do talk about it have the time. It's always soon, shortly, this generation, some of you standing here, the judges at the door. It's always soon. So this double fulfillment idea is nonsense. It's a way to them to say, yeah, I agree, it did happen, but it's going to happen again. And they can't back that up with any scripture at all. Because the Lord said in Matthew 24, 21, for then, he's talking about the tribulation that took place in 66 to 70 AD, then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now, if you believe Christ, Christ says the tribulation that happened in this generation, nothing will ever equal it. So how's there something future coming that's going to be worse? All right, so there's a, there's a lot of opinions as to what the text means. But again, Josephus can help us understand it. And quoting the high priest, Ananus, he writes this, They have seized upon the strongest place of the whole city. You may call it the temple. If you please, though it be like a citadel or a fortress. And that the temple in Jerusalem was a fortress, all right? So this is the high priest at the time saying this, Ananus. Ananus goes on to say, or Josephus goes on to say, the zealots were now seen drinking themselves drunk in the sanctuary. And I like this quote from Josephus, and I put it in bold uh, capitals. He didn't do that. John took possession, he's talking about John Levy of Gishala, took possession of the temple and the adjoining parts. Now, to be seated in the temple of God means that he was established there. He was in the place of control. The Greek word kathizo means to sit, to settle, to continue to tarry. And then he says he's proclaiming himself to be God. And this is where this guy wrote me. When did John Gishala do this? Well, proclaiming here is the Greek word apodiknumi. And Strong says this of it. It means to show off. That is to exhibit, to demonstrate, to show forth. This is not saying that someone sat there and said, I'm God. That's not what the text is saying. They're saying he acted like he was God. He tried to put himself in the place of God. He's not standing up saying, hey, I'm Yahweh, by the way. Now, Stephen DeYoung writes this. He says, in the ancient world, to sit when in someone's presence rather than standing, was to treat that person as an equal or inferior. This is an idiomatic way of stating that he places himself as God's equal. So that's what he's doing. and He's just saying, I'm equal to God. I can do, I can go in the temple, I can do anything. John Bray writes this, John showed himself that he was God. That is, he publicly expressed to all concerned that he was greater than anyone else either among the Jews or the Romans. He was as God. It was He who had caused the daily sacrifices to cease. It was He who melted down the vessels of the temple. It was He who now taunted the powers of the Roman Empire as He refused to listen to Titus, the Roman general. This man had caused the deaths of thousands of people by destroying their store of corn. They had a lot of stuff stored up in the city so they could live during this siege, but they destroyed their own provisions, all right, just making it very miserable within the city. 
He had brought great tribulation upon them all. There just isn't anyone else in the history more fulfilled all that was predicted of the man of sin that did John Levy of Gishala. All right, and I, like I said, I tend to agree with Bray here. I think he did a good job. He's got a little booklet out called The Man of Lawlessness. I think he did a lot of research, and I think that's good. And I, I again, John Gishla, to, Gish, John Levy of Gishla is a, a good a, a good a man as anyone, okay, to stick in that spot. I'm not going to fight with you over it. Again, I don't care who it was, all right? It's not going to affect my life. Verse 5, he says this, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, this is an, in an imperfect tense, signifying that these believers had repeatedly heard preaching and teaching about the rebellion and about the man of lawlessness. In other words, they should have never been confused to start with when they heard this. They should have just said, well, the rebellion hadn't happened. Man of lawlessness hasn't been revealed. No, that didn't happen. You guys are wrong. They had information about this subject, guess what, that we don't have. We don't have it. During his stay in the city, Paul gave them specific instructions about this stuff. And the question here, do you not remember, implies that the church already had sufficient instruction to evaluate and reject the teaching that had got them all upset. Over and over, in these letters of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, they are called to remember what they already knew. Boy, the church needs that call too. We need to constantly be reminded of what we know because we know something and then we're not studying it for a while and then we forget and we fall apart in a panic. You know, because we don't, we're not remember what we know. That's why we keep reading our Bible over and over. That's why we keep going through it so we can know it. He says in verse 6, And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. You is the first century Thessalonians. Okay, that's who the you is. And then he says, you know, now. This is noon, which is an adverb, which may be understood in a temporal sense, now at the present time. Right now, you guys know. These believers knew who Paul was referring to. But he doesn't tell us who it is. We don't know who it is. He doesn't tell us here. He doesn't tell us in any of the other letters. Now listen, there would have been absolutely no reason whatsoever for Paul to write this to the Thessalonian believers if he had been talking about something that was going to occur thousands of years in the future. You know who it is, but don't worry about it. Because he's not coming until, you know, he, he's, he's telling him basically, you know, it's, it's going to be this guy, but you won't know him. Because thousands, no, that's ridiculous. He's talking to them about things that will affect them. He says, you know what is restraining him now? Restraining is from the Greek kateko, which means to hold back, to hinder, to check, to restrain. Now, the Thessalonian believers understood that there was something holding back the man of lawlessness. Now, if they knew what was restraining him, as Paul said they did, then how could it be referring to something 2,000 years away? They knew what the restrainer was restraining them right now. Now, look at these two texts. In verse 6, he says, you know what is restraining him now. You know what is. And then in verse 7, he says, only he who restrains. All right? So the first one is ta-kateko. It's a neuter participle. And then in verse 7, it's ho-kateko, and it's a masculine participle. So what's he saying here? How come it's what and then it's he? Well, maybe we should think in terms of both a person and an office. And what is the office? He is the person. 
All right, what or who is the restrainer? Who is he talking about here? Now, just like we saw multiple ideas of the man of lawlessness was, we got a whole lot of ideas on who the restrainer is. All right? One thing we should understand by now, though, is that whoever he was, he was a first century person. Okay? They knew him. They knew him. Now, some say that what restrains the man of lawlessness is the preaching of the gospel. Well, how's that a he? Some say it's the Jewish state. Again, how's that a he? Some say it is the binding of Satan. Some say it's the church. Some say it's human government. Some say it's a principle of law, a principle of morality. Some teach it was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire itself was a single government that held back the coming man of lawlessness. And then some have suggested it was an angel, and specifically Michael the archangel. Well, that's a he at least, you know. Some say, get ready for this, this is the most spiritual group. It's the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> All right? The Holy Spirit is a restrainer. Now, before we get into the weeds on historical details on who exactly the restrainer was, let me remind you of something you know, okay? All events in the history of the world were ordained in eternity past and are subject to the providence of God. Okay, you with me on that? Ephesians 1 and 11, Paul says this, In Him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. What this is saying, in eternity past, Yahweh came up with a plan. And in time, He is working out that plan. And Yahweh works all things. Everything that happens is according to the plan of God. Now, the objector is going to try to argue and say, all things couldn't possibly mean all things. If it did, it would rob us of our free will. Okay, you hang on to that free will idea, all right? They say it would make God the author of evil. You know what Isaiah 45, 7 says? God said, I create evil. And he uses the word create there, bara. All right, the same word that's in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Bara Elohim. God created this. So he created the earth. He created evil. Where do you think evil comes from? It's just some force that, you know, is, stands against God and he can't do anything about? Some say the catastrophes such as earthquakes and hurricanes, they're outside of the all things of Ephesians 1.11. They can't square these events with the loving God. God's loving. He wouldn't do that. Well, the Scriptures clearly teach that God's sovereign will involves everything that takes place in life. All events in time proceed from His plan, and absolutely nothing takes place by chance. I'm glad about that, okay? Let me give you a couple things that the Scripture reveal about God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will is certain. It's not like God said, oh, I hope this happens. He works all things after the counsel of His will. The things that happen in this life are simply the working out of what God has planned from eternity past. So God's sovereign will is certain. Daniel teaches this. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does, God, does according to His will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
People, God's sovereignty can't be frustrated by angels. It can't be frustrated by men. It can't be frustrated by anything else. The sinner who tries to defy God's plan may shake his fist to heaven and curse God, but God determines how many times he'll shake it and if he lives to shake it tomorrow. God's will is certain. Secondly, God's will is exhaustive. It includes the fly as well as the pharaoh. The mosquito as well as the monarch. People say, if God controls mosquitoes, what if God, in God's plan, he picked this man, I want this man to do this for me. Well, that man got bit by a mosquito, a rogue mosquito, and he got malaria and he died. And God would be going, oh, I should have watched that mosquito more closely. Everything is part of it. And God controls it all. That person can't, listen, God determines who lands on Park Place. Don't get so mad when you lose that monopoly. Blame God, all right? What we need to understand is that God not only sovereignly, supernaturally controls everything, but God also is sovereign by natural orchestration. And what I mean by that is God uses means, usually God uses means to work out His plans through ordinary circumstances. The book of Esther... One of the only books in the Bible that doesn't talk about God, doesn't talk about sacrifice, talks about nothing religious. The book of Esther, all through it you see God's hand in everything that happens. Because He's sovereign and He works it through the ordinary events of life. Now with that in mind, who restrained the man of lawlessness? Yahweh, Right? I mean, he's in control of all this, so obviously if he's restrained, guess who restrained him? Yahweh. So if you pick the Holy Spirit, ding, 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 you win, okay? But, hang on to the butt, okay? Let's see if we can determine who Yahweh used in time to carry out this plan. All right? We know God's behind it. Just like when we get into the following verses, we're going to see that Satan is behind the man of lawlessness. God is behind the restrainer. God's behind all of it, all right? Josephus tells us <clears throat> that the legitimate priesthood of Israel was the restrainer of the zealot movement. Annas, or Annas, whose true name was Haman the Younger, was the high priest and the last of the high priestly sons of Annas of the Gospels. All right? And Josephus, Josephus writes this of Annas. I should not mistake that I said the death of Ananus was the beginning of the destruction of the city. All right, so when they killed him, the high priest, that's when things got bad. And that from this very day may be dated the overthrow of her walls and the ruin of her affairs, whereon they saw their high priest and the procurer of their preservation slain in the midst of their city. He was on other accounts also a venerable and very just man. Hang on to that thought. We're coming back to that. And besides the grandeur of his nobility and dignity and honor of which he was possessed, he had been a lover, lover of a kind of parity, even with regard to the meanest of the people. He was a prodigious lover of liberty. He wanted to keep the peace in the city. And an admirer of the democracy and government. 
and he did ever prefer to public welfare before his own advantage and preferred peace above all things. So he's trying to keep the zealots in line because he knows this is not a good thing. He says, for he was thoroughly sensible that the Romans were not to be conquered. Okay, you guys got to understand, we're going to get squashed here. He also foreknew of necessity a war would follow, and that unless the Jews made up matters with them very dexterously, they would be destroyed. To say all in a word, if Ananus had survived, they had certainly compounded matters. For he was a shrewd man in speaking and persuading the people, and had already gotten the mastery of those that opposed his design. And I cannot but think that it was because God had doomed this city to destruction. So Josephus said, I think, I think God planned this. As a polluted city, and was resolved to purge his sanctuary by fire, that he cut off the great defenders and well-wishers. So he's saying, look, God obviously wanted to keep this thing going, and that is why, you know, he, he wiped them out. He wiped them all out, all right? In Wars 4.1.7, Josephus writes this, And now the multitude were going to rise against them already. For Ananus, the ancientest of the high priests, persuaded them to it. He was a very prudent man and had perhaps saved the city, if he could have, but escaped at the hands of those who plotted against him. Now, so I think that the, the restrainer here, obviously, is the high priesthood, the legitimate high priesthood at the time. Now, let me remind you of a quote I gave you last week from Gary DeMar about the man of lawlessness. Gary DeMar says this, The man of lawlessness was the principal religious leader of Israel, the high priest, who officiated over Jewish law and did not concern himself with using the law in a God-honoring way. All right, so here's what's going on. I'm saying the high priest was the restrainer. Gary is saying he's the man of lawlessness. So I wrote to Gary this week, and I said, do you still hold this view? Because this is from a book he wrote a while back. He said that he did still hold this view, and he sent me an article from Johann Christian Scoogin. And it's part of, it was from Scoogin's commentary on 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, Scoogin was a German New Testament scholar who lived from 1687 to 1751. Now, Scoogin writes this. If the text is rightly related to the circumstances, then the apostle speaks of such a matter as was at that time immediate, and which the Thessalonians believed was able to affect their own lives. So he puts it in a first century context, which blows my mind because later Scogin says, well, this is probably the Pope. I'm like, how does that go to a first century, you know? Speaking of the man of lawlessness, Scogin writes this, not one individual is meant by this term, man of lawlessness we're referring to, but all the Pharisees, rabbis, and experts of the law who are worthy of this title, since not only have they sinned, but they have also caused other transgressions to other transgressors to sin. Now, okay, no one would probably argue with that, but he goes on to say, sitting in the temple of God, these high priests believed that they filled the place of God, and so persuaded the people of whatever seemed useful to themselves. They interpreted Scripture not from the mind of God, but from their own, and so again, abused their authority. And again, I have no problem with that, but I just don't see, you know, he's not connecting it with what Josephus says about that. He just says that, you know, Israel and its leadership were absolutely corrupt. And they were. 
No one's questioning that. They were a corrupt bunch. God can use corrupt people to accomplish his ends. Okay? You know that? He can do that. Well, speaking of the restrainer, Scogin writes this. Perhaps not unreasonably, one could surmise that it refers to Christians. So Christians are the restraint. We're holding back the man of lawlessness. Right. <laughs> Who, by their prayers, had put off the matter for some time, until warned by a divine oracle that they had quit Jerusalem and repaired to Pella. Now, the reason I share that stuff with Scoagin is because this is what I want you to understand. I want you to understand just how difficult this text is and how it can be taken from so many different ways. Okay? I'm saying that the restrainer is the high priest, and Tamar and Scogin are saying, no, that's the man of lawless, the opposite person. All right? Well, I'm sticking with the high priest. Okay? That's my view. I'm sticking to it. Uh, again, you can have another view. You're welcome to do that. Okay? But assuming Josephus is correct, let's remember what he... We, I read a quote from him a minute ago, and this is what he said about Ananus. He said, he was, on other accounts, also a venerable and a very just man. So, you know, but that really doesn't matter. Even if he was a totally evil person, he was against the war because he was smart enough to know if you guys get in a war with Rome, we're going to get squished. We're going to be destroyed. So let's not get in that war. So it doesn't matter how corrupt this guy is or if he is or not, God could still use him as a restrainer. Because as long as Ananus was alive, the very presence and actions, it held John back from the full expression of his lawlessness. Because the high priest had control, and they were saying, no, no, we're not doing that. We can't do that. All right? All right, let's move on in our text. He says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's taken out of the way. All right. Now, the words here, already and now, already is a day. It's an adverb of time, and it means now, already. And now is the Greek arti. It's another adverb, which may refer to the present time in general. So he's saying now at the present time. The point is the mystery of lawlessness was at work when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. The point, it points here to a first century fulfillment. Gary DeMar writes this. The time text, the present restraining, the mystery of lawlessness already at work, restricts the passage time of fulfillment to the first century. Amen. Definitely a first century fulfillment. So he says this mystery of lawlessness. What does he mean? Well, mystery is the Greek musterion, which in the New Testament is something that lies beyond man's natural reach and can only be known by divine revelation. It refers to God's secrets, his counsels, his purposes, and other truths not naturally known to man apart from special revelation or from revealing by the prophets. The mystery of lawlessness, he says, is already working including the rebellious plans of the zealots to overthrow Rome. Now, from as far as I can figure out doing the research on this, um, the zealot movement began when Hezekiah the zealot rose up in 47 B.C. So this zealots have been going on for a while, all right? But they've been restrained, they've been held back, and now Paul wrote this, it was being restrained because it was really reaching its final points. And he says, only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. This is a present active participle. All right, he says he's continuing to restrain. 
But sometime in the future, this restraining is going to be removed. And he says, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Yeshua will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by appearance of his coming. All right, once the high priest who was the restrainer was killed, the lawless one was revealed. Now, John MacArthur writes this. He says, listen, if you think the world is bad now, you haven't seen anything yet. Again, this encouraging eschatology of, don't worry, folks, it's going to get much worse. But, fortunately, he says, if you know Christ, you won't see it. Okay? So, don't worry about that. But, he says, in the day of the Lord, when the restrainer is gone, and all hell breaks loose. Okay? He says, the world will see what happens when God does not restrain Satan in his plans. All right, so he says... uh, you won't see it, Christians. Again, this is the opposite of what the text says. The text says, our being gathered together to Him, okay, the, the resurrection, judgment, parasy, all take place at the same time. Our being gathered to Him won't happen unless we're gathered to Him and the restrainer and the, and the lawless man is revealed. So MacArthur reverses the order, and he has the gathering first, and then the lawless one is revealed. That's exactly the opposite of what the text. And I assume most people can read, and when he says that, I don't understand why they don't say, excuse me, sir. That's not what the Bible says. We don't dare question preachers, though, do we? Whom the Lord Yeshua will kill. Now, this is why people argue that it can't be John Levi of Gishala, because he didn't die. When this from the Romans came in, they took him captive. He didn't die. So it can't be him. Well, let's just look at the text, okay? Kill is from the Greek, anireo, which means to take away, to remove, to destroy. The word is mostly used of killing by violence, in battle, by execution, or assassination. Now, this Greek word is found 23 times in the New Testament, 20 of them by Luke. So this is, this is the word that Luke likes a lot, okay? It's used of putting to death in most of those, except maybe two places that it's not used that way. Maybe three, and I say maybe three because I'm including our text here. Maybe he's not referring to death here. Let me show you these texts. All right, Acts 7.21. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Well, the word adopted here is on Ireo. Now, put kill in there. Does that fit real well? Pharaoh's daughter killed him, brought him up as her own son. That'd be kind of hard to do, right? Bringing up dead people. All right, Hebrews 10.9. And he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. This is talking about the covenants. He's doing away with the old covenant, establish a new one. Did he kill the covenant? No. This is again, anareo. So this word is only used by Paul one time, and that's in our text. How does Paul use this word? We can't be sure. Did he mean kill? Did he mean do away with? Did he move remove? I don't know, and I don't know how anybody can be sure of how Paul's using it. Only time Paul uses it. Okay? And we know it can be used of not killing. And he says he's going to bring to nothing. This is katargeo. It means to make inoperative. Not eliminate, not destroy. So the man of lawlessness was taken away, and he's brought to nothing at the parousia of Christ. Josephus writes this, John was consumed by the spirit of his mouth by being condemned to perpetual imprisonment. 
So that's what he says happened to John Gishala, John uh, Levy of Gishala. Now, Philip Schaff, who wrote this huge set on the history of the Christian church, Schaff says this, the strongest and handsomest men were selected for the triumphal procession in Rome. He's talking about here, after Rome defeated them, they take the prisoners back to Rome with them, and they're, you know, they're showing off their, what they got, basically. All right, so they're, they're showing them. He says, among them, the chief defenders and leaders of the revolt, Simon Bargiora and John of Gishala. Simon Bargia was thrown down from the Tarpian rock. John of Gisela was doomed to perpetual imprisonment. So, Schaff saying they didn't kill him. Josephus saying they didn't kill him. Uh, I'm not sure where Schaff gets the information from, probably from Josephus, you know. <laughs> but uh, they're saying they didn't kill him. So that's why people want to argue, it can't be him. Well, if you make the language say he has to be put to death, then it can't be him. But the, the language, I don't think, is that exact. So the zealots were restrained by Ananus, who was the high priest, until he was killed. And then the rebellion went full-blown. Now the rebellion caused the Romans to attack and destroy Jerusalem. And the destruction of Jerusalem was a cloud coming of Christ in judgment on the covenant-breaking Jews. Look at what Isaiah says about cloud comings. This is what, this is what throws people off so bad. People don't know the Bible. A lot of people just read the New Testament. A lot of people don't even read anything, okay? But they read the New Testament. Christ is coming on a cloud and we'll all see him. There he is. You see him floating in? I don't know how you'd stand on a cloud. I get, of course, he's God. He could do that, right? And this cloud is just carrying him in. Well, you've got to be familiar with the language of the first three quarters of the Bible so you can understand the last quarter. Isaiah is a good text. Learn this text. We will take people to this text when they talk about Christ coming in a physical manner. An oracle concerning Egypt. This is God writing about a judgment that's taking place in Egypt. He says, Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. Now, if you got a picture of Yahweh somehow surfing on a cloud, that's a wrong picture because a cloud coming was a picture of coming in judgment. That's how they use this idea. And then he says this, The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. So Yahweh's riding this cloud. His presence is going to be in Egypt. Right? The problem is the Egyptians didn't say, oh, look, here comes Yahweh on that cloud. He's coming to see us. That's not what they're talking about at all. We know from chapter 20 that God used the Assyrians to judge Egypt. But he says Yahweh's riding a swift cloud because this was a judgment of God against Egypt. And he's using the Assyrians to do it. So did he physically, bodily come to Egypt? He came in the presence of the Assyrians who carried out his judgment. His presence is made known by the judgment. But it was the Assyrians who were literally present. Now, we, <coughs> excuse me, we take that into the New Testament, and the same thing is true in AD 70 in Jerusalem. Okay? Christ didn't bodily come to Jerusalem floating in on some cloud. He came in judgment. It was the Romans who were present. And in Revelation 1.7, it says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Well, that's what Isaiah said. Yahweh's riding a cloud. Every eye will see Him. And, and Isaiah said the idols of Egypt are going to tremble at His presence. So people read this in Revelation and say, he, see, we're going to see Him floating in on this cloud. Everybody's going to see Him, the whole world. Well, first of all, that'd be hard to do on a globe, but we don't have that situation, so maybe it's easier on a flat earth. Okay, 
But it says his coming is to those who pierced him. That refers to Israel, right? Who killed him? It was Israel. As a consequence of his coming, it says all the tribes of the earth, all the tribes of the land will wail. The tribes of the land is a familiar designation for Israel. So the Jews crucified Yeshua, they're going to be punished for it. And Josephus writes this after it was all over, John was condemned to perpetual imprisonment, and now the Romans set fire to the extreme parts of the city and burnt them down and entirely demolished its walls. And Yeshua said there will not be one stone left standing. Amen. Okay? He's going to destroy them with the breath of his mouth. Now this, the background for this is Isaiah 11. He says, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Now, if you're familiar with Isaiah, you recognize this is a messianic passage. This is the messianic king, and he's going to come and establish his kingdom, and he's going to destroy those who oppose that kingdom. We see the same idea, idea in Isaiah 30, 33. He says, For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. It is a pyre made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of Yahweh, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. This idea is, is a judgment when we see this fire coming. It's not talking about some make-believe hell. It's talking about a judgment of God. And as Christ comes in A.D. 70, the zealots were destroyed within Jerusalem. This was all in the future of the Thessalonians when Paul wrote. But it is all in our past now. People, the Lord is here. His kingdom is not here and not coming. It's here. We reign with Christ now. We're not looking for a rebellion of the church in the future. Believers leaving the faith. Antichrist showing up and destroying and killing everybody. End times are over. As I said last week, the church has no end times. No last days. The last days were the last days of Israel. We're in the new covenant, which is an everlasting covenant. He says he's going to do this destruction by the appearance of his coming. Appearance here is epiphanaa, and it means appearing, appearance, glory, manifestation. This word is used six times, one of them for Christ's first coming, the other five for his second coming. So he says it, it's going to happen by this epiphanaa and then parousia. And I'm like, well, they both mean the same thing. Why would you use those two words together when, you know, they, they say the same thing, basically? And so people are confused about this. Uh, why is he doing this? Well, I don't know. I, I think he's trying to emphasize the glorious coming of the Lord. The appearance, you know, being more leaning towards glory and manifestation of his coming and his coming. He's going to come with splendor and majesty. And those in Jerusalem are going to see it so clearly. Okay, we talk about it be a spirit, being a spiritual coming, but his coming definitely was physical to those who lived in Jerusalem. Because he came through that Roman army and wiped them out, destroyed them just like he said he would do. And it happened in that time period, just like he said it would. All right. So you can argue about who the man of lawlessness was and who the restrainer was, as long as you keep it in the first century. Okay, because that's the context. That's when it happened. And if you understand it to be the zealots and the high priest, it all just makes sense because w when they started the zealots, someone started the battle with Rome. 
Well, if they start the battle with Rome, God finishes it. Let me pull out two practical things from this crazy text, if I can do that. In verse 5, he says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? I think we need to see here the first, if we don't continue to study and stay occupied with the truth of Scripture, it can't protect us from false teaching. Okay, We have to know it. The unsettled condition that occurred among the believers in Thessalonica was a result of them failing to remember and reflect upon what they already knew. That's what meditation is. Meditation is remunerate, going over and over what you know. I know this, I keep going over it, I'm dwelling on it, I think on it, so it stays fresh in my mind. So when I hear something false, I'm like, alarms go off. That's not right. That's not what the Bible teaches. We have to stay in the Scripture, people. Secondly, the fact that the Apostle repeatedly taught on the subject of prophecy, I think should show us the importance of it in Scripture. Your eschatology matters. And if you understand that the Lord came in the first century like He said He would, that should give you confidence in your God. Hey, He said He was going to do something, He did it. That's pretty cool. Instead of being like the people who are saying, well, He said that, but making up excuses why He didn't do it. You know, the skeptics got it right. Okay, they can read the Bible and they can say, Christ said He was coming in the first century, He didn't come, therefore He's a liar. They don't believe the Bible. And dispensations come up with other ideas why it didn't happen. But I mean, there's just great confidence in knowing Christ did just what He said He would do. We can, we can trust Him, people. He keeps His word. And you know, I'm not looking forward to Antichrist or a man of lawlessness or wars or judgment or fire. We're in the kingdom now and I'm just going to enjoy the kingdom. Okay? It's a great place to be. It's a great time to be in it. So just enjoy it and stop fussing about the future because whatever the future is, God controls it. Okay? Let me tell you, I think the most comforting doctrine in all Scripture is the sovereignty of God. I know God loves me and I know He controls all things. Those two together, perfect, perfect situation. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank you for this difficult, complicated text. I pray that we would be Bereans, Lord, and we'd search this out for ourselves to see if these things are so. And we'd understand, Lord, there's just a lot we don't know here. But I thank you for what you have revealed. I thank you for Josephus and the insight he gives us into these texts from a historical point of view. Thank you for other historians, Lord, who help us see these texts a little bit better. As I said, this is a really weird text because it's, it's the only one we have in Scripture on this issue. Thank you, Lord, for it. I pray you teach us from it. May we learn, may we grow, may we be the people, Lord, you've called us to be. Understanding our future is bright. Thank you, Father. Amen. All right. Questions, comments? Glenn. says to me, it's just always easy to make it for a sin. I mean, you just take the scripture there and they tell you what's going to happen. And, and it's Paul told them, you know what's holding back this man. So they knew what was holding back and they knew it. It's got to be their, their time frame. And whatever is going to happen, he says it's already at work 2,000 years ago. So it's, it, 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 Why don't people see that? You don't know who he's he talking, is. He's talking to us. Available, but... You know when it was. Right. And, and it's not now, it was, and it's not in the future. 
it was in the day of the early church. So you don't have to prove anything else. That's why that was there. Well, if you could get them to believe it, some they'll just say, well, he's talking to us, though. He's talking to us. They don't get that, that that's written to the Thessalonians. That's a big problem today. Most Christians read the Bible like a newspaper. This came at my front door today. Just picked it up. Look what it says. I'm like, people, we, we've got to get people to think. You know, and I was talking with someone recently about eschatology. And that's what I stressed them. I said, listen, just think about that was written 2,000 years ago to special people. It was written to Thessalonians, to Philippians, to Colossians, people in Ephesus. And it meant something to them. So when you read it, read it with that idea that this is for them. And then how does it apply to me or what do I glean from this? You know, and if you can do that, you know, I took him to Philippians 2 and I said, you know, Paul says, I hope to send Timotheus to you shortly. So you waiting for Timothy? Is Timothy going to come soon? Nobody thinks that. The same exact wording used of Christ. Oh, he's coming in the future. Because that's what we've been taught. And we just hang on to that. Bob says, one more week is fine. <laughs> He'll hell He's holding off on that article until I get done with this, all right? Norm says, hey, David, we not only have the inspired word, we have access to secular accounts ordained and recorded for our benefit. These days, with our immediate access via the, the interweb, there is so much available for us we only, if we only take the time. We say we're Bereans. <laughs> Let's get busy. By the way, Yahweh is absolutely sovereign. That means he is the one who ordained evil without any culpability. Well, that, that is true. I, I agree with you there. No doubt. That, that is the problem. We have at our access today anything. Anything. I can go on PubMed and I can learn all kinds of medical tests that have happened, experiments that have happened, trials that have gone on. I don't have to be told by somebody else. You know, I can go on there and search it. As far as your Bible, you got Josephus is online. You can search it and find different things. There's just so much available. You can go online and find tons of commentaries. You don't need to buy them. You can search them. You can read what people have to say about things. So if you have a heart to study and learn, the information is there. Okay, Either get a library card or internet access and you're good to go. Okay? Gary? Well, um... I can word this right. The the uh, zealots are responsible for uh, the destruction of Rome. I mean, they they started the destruction war. of Jerusalem. That's true. They true. started the war. They did. And and didn't want anybody to get out. So, but were they assuming there were still regular Jews in Jerusalem? They got wiped out along with all the zealots. They did. Yeah. A lot of people got wiped out. And that's why God told the Christians, you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, get out of Dodge. Because they're going to get killed. And that's what we talked about last week. You know, Cestius Gallus backed off, and boom, the Christians fled. Then Titus came in and finished the job and wiped them all out. So the Christians who were smart got out of there. But they didn't have a health wealth uh, <laughs> John Mark from Northern California thanks for telling me who you are so a lot of people leave out their names and I'm, I don't know who or where but I, I appreciate that if you send in a question if I don't know you already if you could tell us where you're from we'd appreciate that he said the advocates of post mill won't budge on the church fathers have spoken train but as you demonstrated in your message already it is the first century church 
the message of the apostles was already being distorted and misunderstood as shown in 1 Thessalonians 2.5. That's right, and you know, you know, people who won't budge on you know what someone has said, you know, they want to go to the creeds, and it's you know the creeds are fine, but they're written by men, okay? So they're not authoritative, they're not inspired, I don't believe, and the people who today who are post mill will say, well, the creeds say this, and another guy who's post mill will say, yeah, but that's in eighty seventy, but this one's in the future, and they just pick and choose which one they put where and how. And, you know, as Gary DeMar taught us at the conference, when the, when the Westminster Confession of Faith was written, it didn't have scripture references in it. That's mind-blowing to me. They just said things. And you're like, where'd you get that from? You know? Because, I mean, if you're not telling specifically. And so if you give a specific reference, then you can go to that reference and say, well, that's not saying what you say it's saying. But without the scripture reference, you can say anything you want to say. That's held up as a Christian doctrine. I figure out what day we're on. I'm not even sure what that means. Okay. The rebellion also involved the Jews printing their own money. Jesus told them to render to Caesar, which was Caesar. They ignored Jesus' warning. Nero said, wipe them out. That's from Charlie in Texas. That's right. I mean, they just, you know, they stopped the sacrifices that were supposed to be carried on for Caesar. They just did a lot of things that were against Rome. And again, Rome's in control now. They're, they're the dominant force. And, you know, I love it when she was talking to the Jews and they said, we've never been enslaved to anybody. I'm like, what? What do you know about Jewish history? I mean, for crying out loud, they've been enslaved their whole life, one person after another. And here they're under bondage of Rome. We've never been in bondage of anybody. I'm like, wow, these people don't have a clue what's going on there. Anybody else? Yes, TJ. There's uh, probably 12 to 15 references when we talk about staying current with that generation. We can't plug ourselves in and say, he's, Paul's talking to us. I mean, he's over and over, every verse. You know, let, let no one deceive you. Um, but the you is us, yeah. isn't it? Do you not remember <laughs> what I was still with you? I told you. And you know what's restraining. We don't know what's restraining them because he didn't write it to us. We're not right. this audience. You know, it's just when you just break it down that simple, I don't care who you are, you, you can't deny that you've got to apply context mm -hmm. and audience relevance. And that's the thing. The church today is ignorant about hermeneutics. They just are. They don't even. Most of people just ask your Christian friends. Hey, you ever heard of hermeneutics? Like, what? Who are you talking about? Okay, that's the science of biblical interpretation. And if you don't know how to interpret things, you can make them say whatever you want. And one of the laws of interpretation is audience relevance. What did it mean to the people it was originally written? That makes sense, doesn't it? I always ask people, who's Revelation written to? Me? You? Were you part of the seven churches in Asia Minor? Because that's who he says he's writing to. Were you in, what church were you in? Sardis, Laodicea, Philadelphia. What church did you belong to? And were you around 2,000 years ago when this was written? They just don't, they skip all that stuff and just say, this is in our future. I, I, I don't know. I guess I've been holding this view for 26 years, so it's a little bit easier for me. To, I mean, dispensationalism now seems like a cartoon almost. You know, like, really? You think that's going to happen in the future? But to, uh, to them, they look at us and like, you guys are just crazy. Gary? Dave, it seems to me that, um, and this is a 
again, not fully fleshed out, but the dispensationalists and the general concept of modern day Christians is their faith is so weak that they want to see this happen. They want to see the destruction. They want to see God's glory. They want to see his destruction. They want to see that God is real because their faith is built on empty promises. Well, there's no doubt they want a physical <clears throat> happening. They want that, you know, because he said this, it's going to be physical. The earth's going to be burned up. We're going to, everything's going to be new. It's a physical thing. We don't, again, just like the Jews of that day, they wanted a political leader to free them from Rome. People today want a physical leader to free them from this world, get them out of here. That's not what it's talking about. Faith. Friday at work, I got into a conversation with a guy I work with. He's a dispensationalist. And we're, we're talking about fulfilled prophecy. Of course, you know, smoke was coming out of his ears. And <laughs> his eyes were crossing, rolling back in his head. And he said, well, what about the, the, the seven churches? Because he's thinking we're in like this, they are the Oh, the age, you know? right, yeah. And I said, all those churches are gone. They don't even exist. Literal churches. But they did at that time. He whips open his phone and starts typing it in on the Internet. And he just starts going, oh, okay. Oh, uh, yeah, okay, so they're all gone, whatever. Um, and that was like the end of the conversation when he said whatever. So that's how you have every conversation. Whatever. <laughs> Go ahead. A little side note here to throw out to you. When you talk about all the bodies in in the city, all the bodies out of the city, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he warned people about being thrown in hell. You cut your arm off if it bother you, whatever. Better do that than to be thrown into hell, or as it says, into Gehenna, or in the valley of Hinnom. Well, that valley outside of Jerusalem was just filling up with bodies. And Jesus said, better follow me, cut yeah. yourself off from this, than to end up being thrown into Gehenna. Gehenna. Mm -hmm. And uh, Josephus tells one time of Titus riding around the city. He could only ride for bodies stepping his horse here and there. And he got to the point where he himself just threw his arms to heaven and said, Oh God, this is not my doing. Right. Words of Josephus. Yeah, there's Josephus says a lot about Titus and the fact that he lamented this, you know, tried to keep the temple from being burned up and destroyed. And, you know, Titus himself saying, This is a work of God. Yes. What is happening there. That's how Titus felt about it according to Josephus. All right, Mike from Lakeland, Florida. Isn't that where um, John Bray was from? I think he was. Lakeland, Florida. Hey Mike, he says, this so clearly shows who all the players were. I say were because it all happened in the first century. I keep stressing that to people that I'm sharing preterism with and they want to keep reading the Bible as though it is a letter to them. Uh, that was me for decades, but my perspective has changed when I heard you on Ron Parton's program. Oh, that's cool. I, I did a program with Ron Parton, and he you know, talked about eschatology. And his, his show had nothing to do with eschatology, but he just had me on rattle everything up. You know, uh, <clears throat> On Ron Parton's show, where to go? Program, and you recommended Glenn Hill's book. I see that he is there today, and I want to say thank you to both of you. You have changed my life. Well, there you go, Glenn. Yeah, he's all right. 
your book changed their life. That that is just so cool that, you know, I mean, we never know, you know, and Ron did this intentionally. He said, I want to shake things up. Will you come on and my my podcast? And I'm like, sure, I'll, I'll do that. And so, you know, we got several comments from people who were like, I wasn't expecting this. This blew me away. I never even heard of this kind of stuff before. So that's cool. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Mike. I appreciate that. This is Corey from Tol- Oh, man, I don't know what the heck's going on in my brain today. I'm having trouble. He's from Mississippi, Tupelo, all right? I know futurists who would argue that every instance Paul uses the word temple is a reference to the body of Christ or individual believers. Therefore, Second Thessalonians must refer to the temple, meaning the church. How would you respond? Well, I did respond. When he wrote to the Thessalonians, Paul hadn't even developed that concept yet. That, no one heard of that concept, okay? That, that the church being the body of Christ. And he's talking about the temple, and, and the man of laws is going to sit in the temple. Okay, well, is he sitting in the church somehow? You know, where is he in the church? How do you get to be a leader in the church that, you know, what is he, some pope? We don't have a pope. I mean, so who even is he if it's the church? And a lot of futurists just put it off to the future. You know, it's going to be a temple, but some other time. It's clearly in context what he's dealing with. The man of lawlessness, he's lawless because he's against the law of God. It's in the temple of God. It's all connected, all right? I mean, in that one where you talked about what Paul said, the temple is us as people, yeah. not a place as the church. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So right. You're a temple. So we are the third temple. So you can't have someone sitting in a person, but whatever. Uh, yeah, and, and if he's sitting in the church, how, what church is he sitting in declaring himself to be God? How's he acting like what? You know, it just it doesn't fit. You know, with the body of Christ, it does fit with what happened. And again, if you know what's going on, then oh, I wanted to. I talked about this book last week. Okay, behold, I'm coming quickly. This is a book I read that tipped me off the fence and into full preterism. It's out of print. Okay, so I looked it up, and I believe I found one copy, a used copy that was for sale for twenty dollars. I think it was on Amazon, but other than that, it's not available. It's published by Pi. And uh, I'm going to try to look into it and just see if, you know, we can get it republished. It's a good little book. All right. I think we're done. We're, we're kind of over time here, so I'm just going to close. Um, let me check something first. Somebody else, as soon as I close, everybody's sending texts in. Thanks for being here, those watching. I appreciate you watching. appreciate you sending your questions in. Um, hope you have a good week. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for the opportunity to just join together in your name. I thank you for the freedom we have in this country to be able to meet without fear of persecution or retribution. I pray we'd keep that freedom, Lord. But if we don't, I pray we'd have enough guts to love you enough to show up anyway. Thank you, Father, for all you've done in our lives. I pray that you'd use us this week. May we be zealous, Lord, with the truth of the Word of God to share it with those around us, calling them to know you, to love you, to believe the truth of the gospel. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you all next week.